0: All right. So I uh, noticed that number eight is up there. This is the eighth message uh, on this topic since we started with the question: uh, What does it mean that Jesus uh, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world? Let us into uh, new creation. Let us into some NT rights stuff. Let us into image bearing. And uh, so anyway, this is almost the last message, I think. Uh, so what is new creation? Now, in the context, we'll, we'll pop it over, but I just wanted to read this, this little compilation of verses out of Colossians and, and just let these settle on you. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is one of the first scriptures we looked at when we were looking at what forgiveness of sin did and how it linked or was linked to redemption. Look at the tenses in that verse. He rescued, past tense, from the domain of darkness, transferred, past tense, to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then dumping down to verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. So let that be the scope of what we are in contact with when we are in contact with Jesus. It was the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness of deity dwell in Him. And through Him, to reconcile all things to Himself. I'll testified about that. Actually, Jen testified about it too, about uh, getting hit on the head and all of a sudden something gets redeemed and opened up in a whole new way. But, reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through his blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And that last little phrase, things on earth and things in heaven, I don't think that that's best understood as just a random inclusion of these two disparate realms, heaven and earth. I think that in Paul's mind, the the overlap of heaven and earth was present there. And the, the discord that is between that overlap is what's being restored and redeemed. And I think that's what we're looking at when we look at new creation. So, anyway, uh, Richard, I only have one review slide. Isn't that amazing? It's the same one we've been looking at. I changed one thing on it, but I just want to get kind of sweep through real quickly the big picture. Even the, my PowerPoint is tired of it because it won't render the letters when it says review anymore. So in Jesus Messiah, Father forgives sins. And it's the fulfillment of God's covenant purposes all the way back through what He spoke about crushing the head of the enemy and bruising His heel, about uh, just all the way through the scope of the Old Testament, all of that. It's about the forgiveness of sins, and God declares us in the right. And then there's one more thing that will come up later in the message, and that's that N.T. Wright talks about the forgiveness of sins being the foundation for the the breaking of exile or the removal of exile. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Then the second category is, is the one where rulers and powers are stripped of their authority and mankind and nations were slaves to controlling spiritual, non-divine, demonic power. And then once sin is forgiven, that authority is revoked. And now these powers war against us uh, by trying to deceive us and get us to surrender our authority, to lend them our authority. Okay? And then the last one is that image bearers are restored, repentance is opened up. And I had globally, but I, I, I had thought about that last verse in Colossians, so I changed it to cosmically. Jesus' new creation kingdom has come in him and is growing through belief and repentance. And then there's a chant, uh, there's a, a verse that's on the thing outside. I had it running a little while in here. I don't know if any of you saw it before it blinked out, but, uh, there, uh, I went back and I tried to find one of the early, if not the earliest announcement about the kingdom of God. And it was, as you might guess, after Jesus came out of the temptation. Remember that? So he comes out of the temptation. So here's the context for the announcement of the kingdom of God and the gospel. And this is where it links the two together. It's in Mark. I don't remember the verse exactly. It's out there in a the foyer. But it's Jesus in the just verses preceding. He had encountered the devil. He had overcome the devil. He had come out of the wilderness. And the first declaration in scripture in the gospel of Mark about the kingdom of God and the gospel is takes roughly this form. And after John had been arrested, Jesus declared, the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe in the gospel. Now just think about that context. He had just come out of a wilderness experience where he had overcome the devil. His friend, his cousin, his prophet had been arrested and would later be beheaded. And in that context, the Scripture records, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the first declaration that the kingdom of God is at hand, believe in the gospel. So, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, Lord, it might be slightly misplaced for us to think if the kingdom would just come, (laughs) everything's going to be smooth sailing. That uh, didn't appear to be the case when it first came. And so I'm not saying that to throw a cold water on anybody's aspirations about that. But what I am saying is that God is willing to be in the midst of it with us in the rough and tumble. So... Cosmically, that's what's going on. So, last week I introduced these concepts. Let's just talk about them a little bit. The mic will be open, but we're definitely going to have some time at the end to go through this stuff as well. So the first step is that God reconciled the world to himself. Um, last week I put this as God uh, was reconciled to the world. But I realized I had misstated that. He never really needed to be mis- to reconcile to the word because his heart had never turned against the world. It was and it says this specifically that God recognized it. Now I've marked these scriptures in um in uh in T Wright's New Testament because I, I just want them to be at least a fresh reading of it. So Second Corinthians five Listen as I read these things. In verse 13, it says, If we are beside ourselves, you see, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the Messiah's love makes a press on us. We have come to the conviction that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all in order that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised on their behalf. From this moment on, therefore, we don't regard anybody from a merely human point of view. Even if we once regarded the Messiah that way, we don't do so any longer. Thus, if anyone is in the Messiah, there is a new creation. Old things have gone, and look, everything has become new. It all comes from God. He reconciled us to himself through the Messiah and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is how it came about. God was reconciling the world to himself in the Messiah not counting their transgressions against them, and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors speaking on behalf of the Messiah as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore people on the Messiah's behalf to be reconciled to God. The Messiah did not know sin, but God made Him to be sin on our behalf so that we might embody God's faithfulness to the covenant. So there's a couple points that I wanted to point out here on this first point, And this is... So I've got six things up here that I'm kind of characterizing as new in the new creation. And I think if, if we'll think about them, it'll give us a foundation that we can begin to build on in a million other ways. So the first one is love recognized that one died, that one being Jesus, and that all died. And it says, therefore, the reason he died was so that people might stop living for themselves and start living for Him. Now think about the difficulty that we're all seeing and facing and reading in the news. And every time you get on social media of some sort, all the comments are full of this stuff. And it's not just exclusive to one political party. It's not just exclusive to one cultural movement. It's not exclusive to one subgroup of people a lot of the trouble is because people are living for themselves and it's it's a difficult thing to avoid it's easy to be tempted to do that and in some ways it's it's right you know uh, no man doesn't love his own body no one doesn't care for himself everybody has a certain sense that they have to take care of themselves you know your health your food so on and so forth so it's not like it's some evil, evil thing that's a complete non-sequitur, but it's just this pervasive thing that divides us and brings out the wrong power in us. So He died so that we might live for Him. That should tell us... Let me read that again so you can see what it says in here. Um, we have come to the conviction that one died for all and therefore all died. And He died for all in order that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and was raised on their behalf. You remember in John chapter um, 16, I believe it is, uh, when Jesus is talking about the Spirit coming back and that the Spirit's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then He explains what each of those means. Of sin, because they do not believe in Me. That correlates in my heart that the the, the central element of this new creation is that we as restored image bearers live for Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, my burden's not heavy. You know, just come to me. It's light. But it is for him. It's not for us. It's not for all the things the world throws at us and says we're supposed to live for. It's to to live in the presence of and to the purposes of the King." And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. So there was a purpose that Jesus died. If we, and one of the characteristics that we've been talking about is how, in N.T. In Wright's words, if we platonize the goal of the Gospel and make it going to heaven way up here someplace, out in space, and we don't realize that it's about living now, embracing now, being governed by love now. Look what it says. It says that love is why Paul recognized that one died and that all died. And then he goes on to say, therefore, we don't recognize anybody according to flesh again. Love gives us that choice. And love empowers that choice to not look at people just on the basis of their human behavior, their fleshly behavior. If we could just function more fully in that capability, it would be much, much easier to watch the news or read social media or skip reading it if that was your preference. So I think this is a big deal. It, it, it governed Paul, and he says, so we may choose, this is what I'm saying, verse 16 there, so so now we no longer know anybody according to just their human values, but it gives us the opportunity and gives us the call to choose the view or to know no one based on the flesh. And that's not easy. Because a lot of times, the only new information you have about somebody, and what I mean about that is the only particular information you have about them as an individual, is what you see on the news or what they do to you when you encounter them. But we know something more because of new creation. We know that one died for all. And that Jesus held them in very high esteem as he was obeying the Father to go to the cross. And he went there because the Father loved, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So we have a choice in this. This is one of those elements. God has, in fact, reconciled the world and the cosmos is the people and the place. And uh, this could go all the way over to a bunch of other things. I'll give you one example in just a second. But we have the choice and the ability because of being in Christ to know no one based on the flesh. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Him, not counting their sins against him. So, if we are to align ourselves in this new creation, image-bearing role with God, we are going to have to not judge people after the flesh, and we're going to have to not hold their sins against them. I, I don't have better advice than that about that. But I believe that the Spirit of God is with us to help us do that. And I think we'll begin to see things that are extraordinary as a result of that. Now, one last thing. The new creation is the place that I want to encourage you and me to explore the privilege, the freedom, and the power of being image bearers. And so one interesting thing about this is that God reconciled the cosmos to Himself. So take, for instance, an issue that's very public and has been for a long time, and it really irritates me, um, or it has capacity to, and it's the climate change issue. So many things are done in the name of climate change that, I mean, uh, it, it has hangers-on in every walk of life, every science, non-science, culture, not you know, everything, everything, everything. Why do you think that the issue of climate change is so pervasive and captures the heart of so many people and is such a talking point. It it, it isn't because there's a giant consensus on the science. It isn't because um, any of us are watching in some apocalyptic way that it's happening. You know, the the degrees of change are very small. They go out over a long set of years, and there's a whole bunch of debate about them when the debate's allowed. But why do you think an issue like this is is so big? I think it's because as image bearers who were originally put on this earth to administer it and administer creation, something resonates in the heart, people, for or against. Something is easy to be touched, easy to be triggered about stuff like conservation, climate change, ecology, you name it. We need to recognize that in us are the imprints of this image-bearing capacity. And rather than just get frustrated when people are making a big deal out of something in a way we don't think, maybe we can understand, so this is why these sorts of things rise to the top all the time. Because we are, for good or ill, image-bearers we are, whether we recognize it and use it appropriately, whether we humble ourselves and get under God in it, we are still that. And so you have people that exert that authority in all kinds of ways because of creation. Now, the good news is that Jesus did come to make all this right. And He wants to do that in large part through us. So, that's one thing that's new. The other thing is that the people of this world... And that means those people, (laughs) sins are forgiven. All of us, mine, yours, and the people that don't know it yet. We talked a lot about that, about Jesus on the cross. Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, So let me read a couple of these scriptures real quick. They're pretty familiar. Hebrews 8, it just gives the criteria for the new covenant. We've read it a million times. This is the covenant I will establish after those days for the house of Israel. My laws I will place in their minds, says the Lord and write on their hearts, thus I shall be God for all of them. They shall be my people indeed. No more will they need to teach their own neighbor or their brother or sister to know me. The Lord from the least to the greatest, each one will know me. For I shall be merciful to their injustices, and as for their sins, I'll forget them forever. I'll remember them no more. That reality is that people's sins are forgiven is a new Reality in this new creation. And if we don't keep our our mind tuned to that, it's very, very easy to roll all this stuff just over, you know, in the the name of punishment on those sins and various things like that. So then Colossians 1, 12 through 14 says this. That's Colossians 2, sorry. This is Paul praying. And I pray that you will learn to give thanks to the Father who has made you fit to share the inheritance of God's holy ones in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He is the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that was why it caught my attention on that verse earlier. These are past tense situations. And we're going to talk about this a little more and I'm wide open to questions about it at the end. But... I know it's hard to think about people being forgiven before they even know to ask, or being forgiven before they ever repent. But if this forgiveness came at that moment on the cross, then we are dealing with people who just don't understand and don't know it. And that should give us an advantage. To think like God thinks. And what God said there, of course, is that their are sins I just won't remember anymore. So, in whatever way we are seeking to process things and people minister to this world, reflect God's image, bear that image, we're going to have to join God in His attitude about people's sins. And they cannot be the lead talking points. Okay, that's a new a new element for sure. Now, uh, 2 Corinthians five nineteen we already read that you know that God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to Himself, not counting their terms against them, and so this makes real this idea that our, the people's sins are forgiven makes real interactive relationship with God possible. There's no longer any true separation required for any reason by God's own nature. Now. This is a complicated thought for me, and I imagine it is for you, and I'm, I don't know how simple I can make it, but I just want to get it out there. God is not under any obligation to separate himself from people anymore. But things create an experience of separation, sin in particular. So I think this is what N.T. Wright is emphasizing when he says that the forgiveness of sins has led to the breaking of exile. So think about Israel under exile. Israel sinned. Was God with them? Yes, he was. Was God with Mordecai when they were in Persia? Was God with Esther when they were in Persia? Yes, he was. Was God with Daniel in the lion's den? Yes, he was. But were they in exile? Yes. So what it really meant was that the Shekinah glory, the presence of God that was no longer in the temple and they were no longer at the temple, this normal God in the midst of the people wasn't there for worship. It wasn't there for declaration. It wasn't there for government. But God Himself did not withdraw His love. And that's what's going on here. Uh, so I'm I, I, trying to come up with a definition of exile. An experience of temporary, real, or perceived separation. And think about what Jesus cried on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, did God abandon him? No. We know that because of Second Corinthians chapter 5. God was in Christ at that moment on the cross, reconciling the world to himself. So there was no abandonment. But Jesus experienced that abandonment and declared that experience. Why? Because he took our reality on himself. So the people in this world are experiencing a perceived separation from anything that is God. And most of them struggle and try to fill that void with something else because they just, whatever, come to a conclusion is nonsense. The new creation, though, has changed that from being a permanent situation and an and, and a, a irreversible, an overcomable situation to something Something powerfully new. That's the next point, I think. In exile, and I don't fully understand this, but the spiritual principalities, you know, Daniel was praying, and he saw the prince of Persia, and uh, Michael had to make war with him, and it had to do with the freedom and so on and so forth. And then there was all kinds of spiritual opposition at the time of uh, Cyrus, and, and when uh, um, Nehemiah was going to bring the people back, so there's all kinds of this spiritual stuff. And it and, and people were under bondage to that. Their sins had put them under bondage to these things. And uh whether those those things are literal demonic principalities and powers or whether they are cultural things like whatever, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I don't know. But uh they were stripped at the cross of Jesus. There's a couple places that say that and forced slavery was broken. So let me read a couple of these passages. So in John chapter 12, starting in verse 30, it says, that voice, well, actually, to back up, it says, Jesus said, Now my heart is troubled. What am I going to say? Father, save me from this moment? No, it was because of this moment that I came. Father, glorify your name. And then out of heaven... The Father spoke and said, I have glorified it, came a voice from heaven, and I will glorify it again. Then Jesus says, that voice came for your sake, not mine. Now comes the judgment of this world. Listen to what this is. Now this world ruler is going to be thrown out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Something happened at the cross and it is a feature of this new creation in which we live, where the power of the, the ruler of this world, the power of the leader of the domain of darkness, principalities and powers that governed the nations, their powers were stripped and broken. And now, forced slavery is no more. But voluntary slavery is still an option. And here's why. Romans 6.15. So Paul is answering the argument about sin and grace in Romans 6.15, and he says this, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Don't you know that if you present yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you really are slaves to the one you obey? whether that happens to be sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to the final vindication. And then he goes on down with this incredibly hopeful statement a couple verses later. In verse 18 he says, You were freed from sin, and now you have been enslaved to God's covenant justice. I'm using a human picture here because of natural weakness. All right. One of the new conditions in this, this place in which you and I live, and we live here. This is the covenant we live in. This is the condition of heaven and earth that we live in. This is the interplay between heaven and earth that we live in. This is the nature of the demonic realm that we are influenced by. Their power has been broken in Christ. But it is still an option for that to rule people and mess things up. And here's why. One, your authority or their authority, everybody's authority has been returned to us in Jesus for good or ill. So let me talk about that a little bit. I'm asking you to think about and encouraging you to believe that when Jesus did what He did on the cross and drew all to Himself, when He died and broke the power of of these demonic things, when He took away the accusations against us and they were nailed when the Father did and was nailed to the cross, our authority as image bearers was given back to us. Everybody. Everybody when the first Adam, the bondage that he brought on the race was done away with in Christ, the restoration of that. Now, is that authority fully glorified and manifest? No, obviously it's not. Hebrews says um, that what is man that you're mindful of him, made him a little lower than the angels and all this kind of stuff. And he says, but no, we don't yet see everything subjected to him, but we see Jesus. So, again, what's new about the new creation is one of the things is that when these powers are stripped of their control and their their mandatory, their authority, now the issue is a voluntary blindness, a voluntary submission. So one of the things we've got to understand is how is it that somebody can be in a political or an economic or a social situation and how do they just mess with things so bad? And what can we do about it? Well, they can be in that situation and they can influence people around them, countries, governments, wars, things like that, because for good or ill, they were created in the image of God and that authority has been restored. It's been taken away from principalities and powers and put back in the hands of people for good or ill. To me, I don't know if it does to you, to me that makes me more comfortable trying to wrestle with how people can do such terrifically bad things and get away with it and have influence over people. It also points me to the reality that there's still demonic issues. Uh, at breakfast on Thursday, one of the guys that was there uh, brought up this book that's just out about the return of the gods by Jonathan Kahn. And I'm going to read it. I've read a couple of reviews about it. I'm not a huge Jonathan Kahn fan, but uh, I know he's fantastic at research. And there's probably some good stuff to gain looking at the demonic culture or history that's being resurrected in this. But it's not like we're victims of it. It's not even like the people that are doing it are victims of it. They're yielding themselves for the sake of lust and sin and power. They are yielding themselves to these spiritual rulers who have been stripped of actual manipulative authority, but now have opportunistic and rebellious authority. So, You say, what's the difference? You take somebody who's leading in a political role or leading in an economic role, and they do some horrific thing that influences a lot of people negatively. What's the difference is whether the demons were in control or they were in control. The difference is, in the new creation, they can repent. They can change. It doesn't require generations and generations of cultural change. We have to believe so that we can pray in faith. We have to speak because we believe. This new creation is designed to be on the side of God. It's designed to be on the side of righteousness. And that is why, back when slavery was an entrenched part of the economy of the Western world, a guy like William Wilberforce, just a British uh, lawmaker, could make such an enormous difference. That's why individual missionaries can go and change whole cultures. That's why somebody can stand and speak against an issue and change it. Because it's not a fixed, spiritual, governed situation anymore. We have the ability to walk with Christ in the Spirit and change these things. Okay, that's the third thing that's new. First is that The world really is reconciled to God. He's not at odds. Whatever the problems are, it's not that he's withdrawing and holding himself away. Second, people's sins are forgiven and this, this, uh, any real necessity or sense of separation is no longer necessary. And lastly, the powers that kept this thing permanent and irrevocable. I mean, so like, uh, I I mentioned last time and then I had a conversation with somebody. Uh, a text conversation about it. Did you say that people used to, before the cross, couldn't repent? And uh, I did say that last week. And I, I, I thought about it a lot this week. And I do believe this. Here's what I'm meaning when I say that. If you envision walking into a pagan culture thousands a year before Jesus, what was the road out of that culture? There wasn't one. I mean, you, you were born there. You grew up there. There are so few stories of Radical change of those kind of cultures. They just went on decade after decade, family after family, century after century. But you have thousands and thousands of stories of radical cultural change, radical personal change, since the time that Christ died and rose again. Missionaries go to New Hebrides, and the whole place changes, and they start worshiping God. Nancy goes down there among headhunters, and they go, that's who I'm looking for. That didn't used to happen, because things were different. So th- this feature is an amazing thing, that people's sins are forgiven, change can happen, the powers are there. All right, let's get to the last ones. Repentance. And Richard, you asked me to talk about it, so I thought a little bit more about the definition. And kind of what I'm talking about is, is it's clearly what we talked about last week, just a change of mind. But in particular, it means come into alignment with, with what's revealed about God, with who God is. Come into alignment with the fact that God loves you. Come into uh, alignment with the fact that Jesus is Lord. That's a big thing. That's a new thing in this kingdom. There's one God in it. Caesar's not God anymore. Neither are any of our political leaders. And, you know, honestly, most of them don't claim it anymore. You realize that it was a very, very common issue prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus that the leaders of these dynasties called themselves gods. There's not a whole lot of people that do that, even the worst among us. It's different. It's a different environment. It's a new creation. So repentance has come into alignment. Repentance has been granted and it's been proclaimed and it's been empowered. We already looked at Hebrews, you know, repentance is available because God has forgiven our sins. Acts five thirty. Let me read these real quick. Okay, what are we looking for? Acts five thirty and thirty one. Oh, yeah, that's good. All right, so this was Peter's view of what happened with the gospel, what happened with the death and resurrection. This is early on, right after Pentecost. This is Peter who's focused completely, and the whole gospel is focused on the Jews at this time. So don't read this to be too restrictive. But uh, this is when, when they say, hey, don't, uh, don't talk about Jesus anymore. You're trying to bring his blood on us. And he said, we must obey God, not humans. The God of our ancestors, listen carefully to this, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus after you had laid violent hands on Him and hanged Him on a tree. God exalted Him to His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance was given through the cross and the forgiveness of sins as a gift. That means that there is this reality of repentance in the new creation that anybody can receive, if they will. Come on up. So I had a vision a long time ago during an ascension of a number of our political leaders genuinely being humble and repenting. I haven't seen it. It seems like a mockery. It seems foolish to even believe. But I'm holding on to that even more now through this, because it is a fundamental part in the, uh, yeah, there you go. It's a fundamental element in new creation. It's a reality. Anybody can repent because they have already, the the, the environment for repentance has been created through forgiveness. Yes?
1: Um, Peter always fascinates me when he talks about repentance. Um and the Greek word is metanoia, uh-huh. change your mind. And Peter talked about this in Acts chapter 3, and he was confronting the very people who killed Christ. Uh-huh. And that's a pretty strong confrontation. And he said, uh, this Prince of Peace whom you crucified. So he's literally pointing to him saying, you did this. Uh-huh. And they, the Bible says they were cut to the quick, uh-huh. And they said, "What must we, we must What must we do?" Because they realized we did this; we killed God's son. This is mm-hmm. pretty strong. He said this way: Repent, metanoia, and be converted, mm-hmm. so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Father. I'm always looking at the end game, and I grew up in a very strict religious environment where repent went repent because you did wrong and that is not the message of repentance Mm -hmm. from the very beginning the first presentation of the new covenant was repent because
0: god has forgiven you. god
1: wants to go for a walk with you and he wants (laughs) wants you
0: to come to him that's exactly it that's exactly it i i just recently got a a book and i was reading in it just today as a matter of fact and took me back to some of the early church fathers and um, a couple other writers that were drawing on them and they, they made the case, which I've been hammering away on for a while now. Forgiveness precedes repentance. It creates the, the reality into which repentance can manifest. Forgiveness does not come from repentance. It is given as a gift. That's what he says here. Okay. And then the, uh, administratively, the apostles recognized this. And so then they were, this is in Acts 11. Peter concluded, if God gave them the same gift as us, when we believed, it's talking about Cornelius and his household and so on, uh, who might have stand in the way. When they heard this, they had nothing more to say. They praised God and said, well then, they declared, God has given the Gentiles too, the repentance that leads to life. So see how they understood repentance was a gift. So that's what's here. Here's the deal. What we have to believe is this. We turn away from the lie that we're alone. We turn away from the lie that God... Doesn't help Now, all of us have done that. okay? But there's a bunch of people we know. People in our family, our friends, other people that we're working with and so on. They need to do the same thing. It's not a matter of snotting and blowing because they've been such a horrible person. It is a matter of stepping up and looking at God and saying, okay, so I'm willing to try to believe that you love me. This is what God has done. He's given us that forgiveness in Christ. Believe it, believe in Him, and begin to believe that you can draw near Be loved by Him, be received by Him, and be changed. And we just have the message in the new creation, you are not convicted to stay. You are not condemned to stay the way you are. You are not condemned to believe the lies that you've grown up believing. It's a new thing. In Christ, men and women are new creations. Back to Second Corinthians. You know, Paul says that uh, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. And love constrained him to look at no one. I I do need to read it one more time. We're running out out of time here, but we'll get there. Let me read just this one little part. For the Messiah's love makes us press on. We have come to the conviction that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died in order for all those who, who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and raised. From this moment on, therefore, we don't regard anybody from a merely human point of view, even if we once did. Thus, if anyone is the Messiah, he's a new creation. Old things have gone. Everything becomes new. So, one of the realities in this new creation is that men and women are new creations. Now, this is tough. Because the real question about this aspect of us and relating and thinking about new creation is, is one of application. And here's the question. Is our actual new creation in Christ conditional only upon Jesus' work in response to being sent by the Father? Or is our new creation in Christ that work plus our affirmative response? Let me state it again. How you think about this makes a difference on how you see people. Has God made this person who is living such an objectionable, abusive, destructive life, has God made them a new creation? And is because of God's doing that, are we obligated, like Paul said he was, to see no one according to the flesh? Or is the newness of that new creation, Christ's work, which all of us agree that it is, plus our affirmative response. So until this abusive, destructive person makes that response, they're somehow, they're not new. Okay? Here's what I want to do. It's okay to believe whichever you believe. Because there's plenty of Scripture in there that points to the importance of our response. But I think this, I think we do a great damage to understanding the newness of this amazing kingdom we're in and the boldness that we can walk into any situation. And we can say to this arrogant, abusive, if we have a reason to deal with them at all, we can say to them, you're better than this. God has redeemed your life in Christ. You're not sold to some." Gross, self-centered, demonic power. You're better than this. And I think the Spirit can also back that up. And I think He can back it up with our prayers. He can back it up with our declarations. But I want you to know. So let me ask you one question. How many of you in here have made a positive response to Christ? Raise your hand. Okay. So look around the room. That means that for all of us, it's not a question. Right? We are new creations. So when you're disappointed in your behavior or your uh, performance, don't be tempted to think you're not a new creation, right? For us, it doesn't, it's not a question. If you still are wrestling with the question of, well, yeah, but what about, what role does that response play? That's fine. I don't think you can exegete the scripture enough to come to that answer. I think you have to hear that from the Holy Spirit. And I'm not suggesting to you that I know and you're just not ready for me to tell you. No, I'm walking through this the same way. Believe me. I see people and I see behaviors and I see institutions that I go, I don't see a shred of new creation in them. But I think it's there. I think it's there. And when I allow myself to do that, I have hope so that's that 's the first five here 's the sixth one that 's new. this new creation we 're in is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth and uh, so I put down there this will lead to our last thoughts, and I did intend that to be a pun about new creation we 're going to have to talk about eschatology so that 's what 's coming next And I will confess to you that I am largely unprepared to speak with any sort of authority or confidence in eschatological terms. I have my own beliefs, but I know it's time, and I know we have to look at it. And I know that the wrong eschatology works against our recognition of the realities of the new creation around us. And not everything that we've thought is wrong, and not everything that people teach is wrong, I don't think at all. But things that put all of these characteristics of repentance and glory and all this stuff off to the future, they work against our recognition of living in the new creation right now as image bearers of God. So that's what we're going to end up doing. We have a few minutes, maybe. Kids are coming, ready. We probably don't have a few minutes. Does anybody have a comment or a challenge to this? Well, let's pray for one another that we could see the new creation. Oh yeah, come on up here. Come on up. I think we got it on
1: here. Okay, so I I believe that uh, the veil, or Christ's flesh was the veil between our soul and our mm-hmm. spirit. So, maybe even though people may not be accessing the new creation life right now, they do have access because that veil was torn. And I wonder if, you know, our responsibility as people who reconcile men to the Father, uh, you know, we should be teaching people how to meditate, how to look inward, how to see Jesus there and then become transformed. Like, you have access, you know? You
0: know, that's an interesting point. I... Probably would be my answer. I think that there's certainly danger because, again, there's so many substitutionary kind of alternatives. In other words, spirituality is super popular as long as it's not toward God the Father receiving His love. But if we could help people with a focus of of being loved, with a focus of being valuable, I think that would be a brilliant thing to do. I really do.